0: I think we're looking at more than one fracas. Execution here, Wild West over there.
1: It's a Mexican brown dope.
0: Oh, these boys is all full up. So this was earlier, getting set to trade. Then, whoa, differences. And, you know, it might not have even been no money.
1: That's possible.
0: But you don't believe it.
1: <laughs> no, probably I don't.
0: Well, it's a mess, ain't it, Sheriff?
1: If it ain't, it'll do till the mess gets here.
0: Welcome to The Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long.
1: And I am Cole Roland. Each episode of The Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us.
0: We've arrived at episode 8, which is Cole's choice, so what do we have today?
1: Episode 8 is going to be about No Country for Old Men. From 2007 Directed by Joel and Ethan Cohen, Also their adapted screenplay Of Cormac McCarthy's Source novel of the same name Starring Tommy Lee Jones Josh Brolin Javier Bardem Kelly MacDonald Woody Harrelson And Barry Corbin A brief synopsis of the film uh, Llewellyn Moss is out hunting In the West Texas desert And stumbles across a drug deal Gone really wrong Takes two million dollars from the scene, finding almost no one left alive, one man at the very edge of death. The owners of that money dispatched this hitman psychopath, Anton Chigurh, to retrieve said money, and their chase stretches across the country with Tommy Lee Jones' character, Ed Tom Bell, the sheriff, two steps behind them, essentially, the entire way. That is what, ostensibly, the film is about, That's wrong. (laughs) And I'll explain why by the time we get to the end of all this.
0: Okay. So why did you choose No Country for Old Men?
1: Because it's a really personal film for me, almost exclusively because of my own father. I really connect this film to my dad. You and I were out for a walk a couple of weeks ago, and this was just before my birthday at the end of October. And I just turned 45, and we were talking about my dad at my age. Mm -hmm. And I just started thinking about that while we were out for our walk. And by the time we had finished that over the course of that hour, I had basically written this entire episode in my head.
0: And I think I remember afterwards realizing, wow, you've been silent for about 45 minutes at this point. So the wheels were really turning. Yeah. This
1: one really is, this is an extremely personal film for me for that specific reason to paraphrase, Another Coen Brothers film. Mm -hmm. Well, to quote directly. Okay. (laughs) I come from a long line of frontiersmen and outdoor types. (laughs) That's true. Which is not exactly true. It's more like I come from a long line of taciturn okies who put a great deal of stock in the idea that you don't have to be talking all the goddamn time.
0: It's true. I've seen the photos and it, it really comes through.
1: Yeah, we live very much by that whole, you ain't hurt. (laughs) Rub some dirt in it. Walk it off. The only thing that crying about it does is make a lot of noise and give you a headache. Yeah, these type of men are men I've known my entire life. But I know that isn't your culture exactly. You didn't grow up here. You grew up in Virginia and Idaho. Yes. So it's a little bit different from hardy plain folk.
0: It is. They're, They're hardy folk, but mountainous or lush rolling hills and mountains. And I think of my folk... As, as Definitely taciturn is not the word that I would ever put with them. Verbose would be
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> the opposite of that.
1: Again, I've also met them. Yeah, so, so you
0: couldn't attest to that. I agree. And uh, so it's it's very much, a, I would say, a storytelling culture. Mm, it's yeah. passing down the stories of the family and the traditions and keeping them alive and the folk tale tradition as well. So I think of a lot of talking, a lot of stories, a lot of joy and community, which is not... So, really, this experience.
1: No. So, that being said, why do you gravitate to this film? Why would you have chosen it?
0: You know, I think it has to be about, it has to come down to the quality of the Coen brothers, I think, more than anything. I'm a huge fan of the Coen brothers and have been from uh, the very start. The first thing I saw was Raising Arizona, mm. uh, which was a great kickoff. And, it went back and saw Blood Simple after that, right. but I've pretty much seen everything that they've done at the time that it has come out, or right. very shortly after. So, for example, with this film, I didn't see it in the theater, uh, which I That's regret. Too bad. Yeah,
1: it looks fantastic. It
0: does, and it the the sound design I think in particular is very well suited to the large format theatrical experience. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm delighted that I saw it, period, but I do wish I had seen it in the theater.
1: Well, I did see it in the theater. I saw it in that stretch of time at the end of 2007 where I saw this and there will be blood essentially back to back. And for me, that entire latter half of that year, and probably, in fact, the first half of the next year, was nothing but this dry West Texas existential loop where I either saw these films in the theater multiple times mm-hmm. or got them on home video and then basically had them on a television somewhere in my house playing nonstop.
0: Yes. So even though this is not my experience and this is not my landscape, I think what I respond to in part of the Coen brothers entire body of work is that they tell amazing stories of amazing people wherever they are and they capture that sense of place. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very easy to fall into that atmosphere.
1: Oh, without a doubt. It's that sense of place and that sort of grim straightforwardness that has made this my favorite of all theirs. It was a sort of 180-degree switch for me. Prior to that, my favorite was Barton Fink, Okay, I would say, which is, in tone and sense of humor and all of those other things, far different from this. Much more verbose, like you were, were saying. With all its pretensions and conceits, it's just the polar opposite of this movie. It is. Essentially. The thing I like best about this is that there's no more fooling around. There's no more tongue-in-cheek. There's no more cleverly letting themselves off the hook. They are just telling this hard-bitten story yes. with no unnecessary flourishes or winks to the audience. There is humor in it still. Mm-hmm, there is. But there is no more of and that. And there
0: are those touches. There are those specific Cohen Brothers touches of character driven scenes with a clerk Mm -hmm. and that sort of thing. Yeah. It's all (laughs) those administrative detail, right?
1: That's all still just as Cohen as any of those other films.
0: Now you mentioned lean, hard bitten story. Mm -hmm. So I full disclosure have not read this book. Oh, it's good. Do you think that they have served the source material well with this adaptation?
1: I think it's, An improvement, in fact. There are two major differences. And before we get into this, I guess we should address, for the people who are just listening for the first time, there's this entire anti-spoiler culture on the internet where this show lives that I think is ridiculous.
0: Except when the New York Times ruined the Great British Bake Off finalists (laughs) for the current season. I was really (laughs) pissed off at that. But we are not doing advanced screenings. Of no, new films. We are no. talking about established works.
1: Right. And you cannot have a fruitful, thorough discussion of those works without going into what would be considered spoiler mm-hmm. details. I even hate the word. I think it's for sissies.
0: <laughs> Quit your crying.
1: So if you listen to our show, just be forewarned that we are always going to talk about everything in pretty explicit detail. Mm-hmm. Great. Okay. So the film diverges from the book in two significant aspects. One, it is much more Sheriff Ed Tom Bell's story, which is Tommy Lee Jones' character mm-hmm. in this film. Every chapter opens with his narration.
0: Whereas in the film, we get a couple of moments of that.
1: Right. And in the film, it seems like it's much more about Llewellyn Moss, Josh Brolin's character, it for the first four-fifths even.
0: And it, well, there's really a generosity for every character That's to true. give perspective. So.
1: That's true. At least the triumvirate of mm-hmm. the of the main characters, the third one being Anton Shiger, the assassin played by Javier Bardem. Right. Okay. So there's that. It, in the book, it's much more clearly Bell's story. Okay. And the other significant thing, in terms of the theme, in the book, Carla Jean Llewellyn's wife,
0: Kelly Macdonald,
1: she in the film refuses to participate in Anton Chigurh's Game of Chance, determining her fate.
0: Yes, yes.
1: In the book, she calls that coin. And she has a bit of a meltdown. She has a breakdown, sort of. Okay. And she's much less resolute and clear-headed and not at all defiant, the same way Kelly MacDonald plays it in the film. And I think in the film it's a much better choice because it is just one more distinctly different perspective from outside that trinity of those men. The last woman standing refuses to participate in this game.
0: Yes, yes.
1: And so it changes your whole perception previous to that in the film of this whole idea of fate versus self-determinism. Yes. It's one more significant voice in that conversation.
0: Well, interestingly, when I was reading about the film, I believe Kelly McDonald said she decided to respond in that scene more truly to how she would as a person. So it was a choice that was made.
1: Well, her instincts are dead yeah, on them yeah. because I it, can't
0: imagine it any other way. It's such a shift mm-hmm. that feels so important.
1: To me, yeah, those, those changes that seem small but I guess are really significant from the book to the film make the film even an improvement to me.
0: Well, I, as I said, I haven't read the book, and I really want to give it a try now because my very limited experience with Cormac McCarthy begins and ends with picking up all the pretty horses mm-hmm. and not being able to fall into it and mm-hmm. so I stopped and I didn't continue I can see that. So besides this, are there other
1: There are three choices? books in particular that I would recommend to people who have not read Cormac McCarthy or really want to understand what he does. Blood Meridian first and foremost, if you only ever read one, Blood Meridian is the one to read to understand his entire philosophy Okay. No Country is mm-hmm. the second one and I think it's a nice contrast to Blood and because it's a really fast read, but you still get sort of the stripped-down sense of how he perceives what happens in this world. And the third one that I really love is Sutri, which is okay. miles different from those two. It's much more, to me, almost like his Mark Twain book. Wow, okay. It's really beautiful, and it's this oddball southern that story that's unlike anything else in his body of work. It's, more
0: of my people?
1: No. Different Southern. Different Southern. Mississippi Southern.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's different. I I feel
1: like Faulkner Southern. Uh Aha. Not Southeastern. Yes. So those three, Sutri, No Country for Old Men, and Blood Meridian. If you've never read Cormac McCarthy or really want to get into his best stuff, those are the three for me. Okay.
0: Also, in reading about this film, I found a funny, to me, quote that the Corn brothers said in their adaptation process, which is that one pretty much holds the spine of the book open while the other one types. Well, in this
1: case, that's exactly true. They
0: stay very, very true to the material. It is
1: super faithful, aside from those two changes, aside from those two improvements that we mentioned. It is extremely faithful to the text of the book.
0: And they did win Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay Deservedly for this. So. Yes. And this is actually, among the entire Coen Brothers' work, this is not the most nominated film of theirs, but it has won the most awards. Mm-hmm. Actually, True Grit was the most nominated of everything. Really? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah.
1: I would have never guessed that one.
0: I wouldn't have either. But yes, so one best adapted screenplay, and we can see why. And why do you think the Coen brothers are so suited to this piece? What else do you think that they bring to this film?
1: They share a mutual love of the precision of language that Cormac McCarthy does economy and precision without being sterile. I know a lot of people felt like this was kind of clinical and I sterile have, and I think why? that's crazy.
0: I don't I don't get that at all. I think that's crazy. I
1: think it was very I don't think there was a wasted second of it. I do not by any stretch of the imagination think it was at all clinical or empty.
0: What were your what are your favorite pieces to this? I'd mentioned sound design earlier.
1: The thing I like about it an awful lot is that it's their least stylized film probably since Blood Simple. There aren't those virtuoso camera movements of, say, the Hudsucker Proxy or the exaggerated slapstick of Raising Arizona. Mm -hmm. I like that it is stripped down to almost nothing. It suits the material.
0: And the place.
1: There is nothing in it that does not need to be there, Mm -hmm. which appeals to me, like I said in my intro about my dad and where I grew up and the kind of people I come from, We don't put a lot of store in wasting a lot of time. Yes. Get to it.
0: Well, that brings me back to Ed Tombill, played by Tommy Lee Jones. Is he the character that you most identify with in in this sort of ethic as well?
1: I would say it's 50-50 as far as which character I identify with between Tommy Lee Jones and Barry Corbin's character, Ellis, his uncle, whom you see just at the very end of the film in a very small but, pivotal. but absolutely pivotal scene. Mm-hmm. He is speaking for me, I feel like, in that case. Actually, I'd say I'm even 70 Ellis, 30 Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, all right. Okay. Because Why is that? Tommy Lee Jones, that character, is going through this crisis of faith mm-hmm. and he's doing an awful lot of measuring of himself against his ancestors and. Things I don't do myself. okay. Okay. Problems I don't have. So I identify much more with the pragmatic character, the voice of reason, the voice that's going to steady him and get him back on track because I don't necessarily relate to feeling like I have to live up to a legacy, Mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But there are other elements of it, especially the father stuff, that I definitely relate to, which we'll get to in a lot greater detail later.
0: Well, also it seems to me... Like you said, Tommy Lee Jones' character, by the way, never better than in this film. Fantastic. He's grappling with this crisis of faith.
1: And it's that crisis of faith, actually, that defines Tommy Lee Jones' character as just one point on this triangle of the trio of main characters. That righteousness. He is the righteous man in this scenario. Mm -hmm. Where you have Llewellyn Moss, who is more of an amoral character, I guess. At least considering... His decision that sets this whole thing in motion the taking of the money there's no real victim in that crime it's dirty money mm-hmm. everyone's dead so he's, he's not crossing anyone he is not
0: well except that we learn that there are larger power players
1: but all criminals
0: all criminals absolutely
1: and then you have the third point on the triangle Shigure, who is chaotic evil mm-hmm. who is an element of disorder or at least it's presented as such. I have an argument that he's not exactly the supernatural force that a lot of people read him to be.
0: Well, I think Kelly McDonald's choice... That's one makes thing. It, yeah.
1: But even before that, he has a very basic human agenda, which is outlined from the very beginning. He is going after that money for himself. Yes. And that's his basic and human and unsupernatural, unboogeyman. As it gets. He's looking for a payday.
0: And at every other point, simply to survive. Right. Understandable motives. Not disordered motives. No.
1: From the very beginning, they're set up as locked in each other's orbit. Yes. For instance, in the very opening of the film, when Shigurh is being arrested and Moss hunting, you see each of them stalking their prey Mm -hmm. and, in fact, saying the exact same line of dialogue that holds still Shager before he puts that slaughterhouse tool through his second victim's skull, and Moss, right before he fires at one of those pronghorn antelope. Implying, at least to me, that these guys are locked in a collision course already, and even before Moss commits the act, which essentially sets the whole thing in motion, taking the money. It implies to me that these guys are already locked together before that even happens, before that decision is made.
0: So is it fate or is it self-determination? Are these three points moving inexorably toward each other? Or at any point, could one point go a different direction?
1: I think at one point it could go either direction. I don't believe in the idea of inexorable fate. Mm -hmm. And I don't think this film does either. I always think of that line in Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead right before... Again, spoiler. (laughs) Right before... They spring the gallows trap door on them where he says there must have been some point at which we could have said mm-hmm. no. Yes. There are an infinite number of intersections at which this could have gone a completely different direction.
0: So is that why Sheriff Ed Tom Bell is grappling with his crisis of faith and Ellis is not because he's already seen all of those permutations take place?
1: Could be, but I don't think so. I don't think that's what makes Ellis so resolute in the way he feels about the world. I think it has as much to do with him having been shot and paralyzed. True. That character. True. There's a certain resignation and acceptance and pragmatism that comes from having been in that wheelchair for all this time and having your choices limited for you. Perhaps.
0: So, why is Sheriff Bell still grappling with that if he's then had even more decades of experience in the field seeing these things get worse and worse and worse?
1: That will come later. Okay. When I talk about my dad, I have a very specific idea about that. Okay. Essentially about him being a man out of his own time. Ah, okay. I think it has a lot to do with that. But in terms of. Fate versus self-determination. I think there's an infinite number of choices that any of these characters could make that would make this story turn out completely differently. Mm -hmm. In fact, you know, I say he makes the amoral decision to take the money, which starts this whole thing in motion. But you notice it's the moral decision that puts him in jeopardy. When he goes goes back back. to take the dying man water Mm -hmm. and tries to do the good, noble, right thing that's the thing that seals his fate. Not doing the evil and or neutral thing. Mm -hmm. Doing the good thing is what really cements the fact that he is now running for his life until the end of his life, essentially. Which makes me think of something else I was going to ask you. In this situation, do you keep that money? No. You don't? you know why
0: I say that? Why do you say that? Because I've seen movies. (laughs) And I know what happens.
1: But you also know... How to avoid those.
0: You only get the free pass if the soundtrack is playing happy, upbeat music. You don't get it when you hear silence and West Texas storms coming in. You've got to look around and know this is... You've, you've seen six people, dead, bloated bodies, including the dead dog. And you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it out of this, no problem.
1: No. But what if you have a sweet mix on your own CD player Hmm. blaring? What if you provide your own soundtrack? (laughs) Is that an exception to that rule?
0: Really, Llewellyn Moss is a pretty capable guy.
1: Oh, yeah. All three of these men are wily and resourceful men.
0: Yes. Nobody in this is stupid. I don't know that I am as capable as Llewellyn Moss if I were to be set down in this situation, I don't know where I would go. My mom would probably text somebody <laughs> that it happened or use her one time on Facebook a year to put a picture of me or so. I don't know. Something Why would in happen.
1: in world would you tell your mother? She
0: would find out somehow. See, that would be my first my first mistake. I'd call my mom. I, I Yeah, I, I don't take the money. I don't take the money. Maybe I call you. No, no, no. No phones. No phones. I come home and I tell you what I've seen and then I just leave it in your hands. I will definitely take that money. You're going to take that money?
1: And you need to be prepared to do what we need to do and go where we need to go (sighs) as soon as I say.
0: I have some appropriate luggage I think I could get moving. Are you actually telling me that you would be able to leave behind... Our extensive film collection of 4,600 titles.
1: $2 million buys a lot of DVDs.
0: Okay. Now, we're talking $2 million in 1980. dollars. Right. So now, would you still do it for $2 million if it were right now?
1: Yes, I certainly would take that money. Okay. And I would do a lot of things that I have learned from movies to prevent <laughs> anyone from figuring out who I was, okay. where it went. Yeah, immediately... That transponder goes immediately. Oh the yeah. luggage, Come on! Immediately, the luggage that it's in goes. It is transferred to my own yeah. personal carrying yeah. device. Yeah. After I've gone through it to remove any sort of tracking. Yeah. Yeah, I take that money.
0: Okay. I'll just. Uh, should I just go ahead and get the baby's first acid burner fingerprint <laughs> burner offset?
1: I take get that, ready. <laughs> I take that money because. I believe wholeheartedly in what the film says. We are not masters of our own fate, no matter how much we think so. We can do as many things right to make the odds as much in our favor as they can possibly be. Mm -hmm. But there are 7.3 billion variables just in the form of the other human beings on the planet that could make that go awry.
0: You know, I think about one of the first pieces of spoken dialogue, the deputy who is shortly about to be killed, who says, I got it under control. Mm,
1: exactly. Nope. Sure don't. Even for much smaller stakes, yesterday, as an example, did your day go exactly how you planned it to go? No,
0: it did not. Which right. is why I don't take the money.
1: <laughs> <laughs> My argument is that either way, those things are going to go however they're going to go. So why not do it with $2 million? Hmm. I,
0: I just don't want to end up on the floor of the dirty motel carpet. I just always see that stuff going down that road. How, how many DB Coopers are out there?
1: I don't know that I'd pick him <laughs> as the best example. As my guess is, his skeleton is embedded about 18 inches down in the mud of a creek somewhere. Ah, with okay. his parachute still strapped to his back. <laughs> Okay. And they just haven't come across it yet. Okay. One day, some industrious Boy Scout troop is going to turn that up. But, no, I think i take it. Okay. Because, again, simply put, you are a fool if you think you are in complete control of everything. And that applies equally to stepping off the curb in front of a bus as much as it does to making sure no one finds out you took this $2 million. You're rolling the dice either way. hmm So... Roll for the big money.
0: Well, with the exception of those those decisions, for example, not to he doesn't find the transponder quickly enough, doesn't get rid of it quickly enough. He's trying to do all of these things to stay a step ahead, and it still doesn't work. Is that because there are just too many other players involved that are out to get him besides just Sugar who's
1: There's only one that is important and it's Sugar. It's bad luck if you have that person that is just a hair more Lucky, wily, and determined than you are.
0: And, and as it, the transponder receiver. That helps.
1: <laughs> I don't see that as pessimistic, though, that whole worldview. There's as much chance, I think, that something great could happen in these instances. And it doesn't have to be about $2 million of drug money. I'm just talking about day-to-day not being fully in control of everything. Mm-hmm. The whole thing being you do your best and you make peace with the idea that what's going to come your way is what comes your way, and you are equipping yourself to deal with that as best you can. That's where Bell's struggle is.
0: And why do you think that is? Because it, this could be something that is maybe more fleshed out in the book, possibly. But it doesn't seem—I don't identify that struggle with his characters how I see him. It's—it was a surprise to me. What do you mean? He seems like the pragmatic person. He seems like he can see several moves ahead and is still struggling to do his best. But the, the crisis of faith and the thinking about more about his father just he, seemed a little bit odd to me. Uh, he him. says
1: very specifically why. He's overmatched. It's the struggle of the noble man. It's the struggle of the noble character. He is confined by a certain behavioral code that the amoral or the evil character yes, he's not are going, not bound
0: by. Right. It. He's not going to go outside the law.
1: No. And so because of that, that struggle, that friction comes from him bumping up against those boundaries and knowing there's only so much that he will allow himself to do.
0: That makes a lot of sense.
1: It clearly outlines that we're not without agency. Mm-hmm. There are choices we can make and we can dictate how we go when it comes to this crossroads. But if you are adhering to a fairly strict moral code you are limiting those choices the circumstances aren't limited for you, mm-hmm. you are making that decision and at the other end of that spectrum you have shiger whom we characterize as evil, which I think is a bit of a cop out too, obviously he's a psychopath and in this case he's a very extreme case of evil behavior but I think on a spectrum when you're not talking about a character that's so far to the other end, we use that word As much to make ourselves feel better about where and who we are. When we characterize something as evil, we want to characterize that thing as something other than ourselves. We are identifying as that is a thing that is outside of me that I do not belong to.
0: Whereas I think his motivation is primarily elimination. Not pain. Not to cause pain. Obviously that happens. But it's just simply that you are in my path.
1: And he's certainly expert at that elimination. It goes his way, at least up until his final interaction with Carla Jean. So by the time the end comes, he has recovered that money. Moss is dead, though not by his hand.
0: I always took it to be the people who are leaving in the truck, the high speed that have the guns. As Belle was that, coming up. Yeah, right. I, th- I thought that they had done it.
1: Right. He recovers that money After that whole thing goes down. When he returns to the crime scene, Mm -hmm. which, again, is something that each of those characters do. That's one more element of them mirroring each other's movements. Moss goes back to the drug deal gone wrong. Mm -hmm. And that is his undoing. Tommy Lee Jones repeatedly has to visit these crime scenes in his official capacity. And outside his official capacity, I guess, at the end in El Paso, which is out of his jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And Sugar returns to those crime scenes the very last time to retrieve that money that's in the ductwork of the hotel room.
0: Again, with a very clear motivation, clear path.
1: So I'm, I know a lot of people had a problem with the ending. Well, several problems, but one in particular being you never got to see that final showdown between sugar and Moss after this cat and mouse game has played out from West Texas to Mexico and back again. Moss dies off screen.
0: Yes. We've spent so much time with him. Over the course of this film. And the way we find him dead is we don't even have sort of a, a face shot. It's really kind of a right. side Right, it's very profile. undignified
1: mm-hmm. for all the work he has put in to survive. Even with his mighty will to survive, he doesn't make it. Nor is he afforded any sort of hero's burial cinematically. No. He is just another casualty.
0: Yep. He's just gone. The player is off the board.
1: And Moss's death is essentially the last straw for Sheriff Bell. It's what prompts him to retire, I think. He can't deal with the scope of this crime anymore and how it affects people who aren't criminals. So he goes to visit his Uncle Ellis. And for me, what is the pivotal scene of the movie? You realize at this point that the first four-fifths of this film have actually been prologue. Like I said at the beginning, this is not... That cat and mouse chase is not what the film is about.
0: Mm -hmm. That plot synopsis was simply a part
1: of the story. It only sets us up to get to what is really going on, which I think is, even though he is in his, what would you guess, 60s? Easily, yeah. This is his coming-of-age story for a number of reasons. He's obviously still learning how to navigate this world, and those elements of his story when he talks about his father, either in dreams or reminiscences, he is clearly almost speaking as an adolescent, like he's still developing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What this movie is about, essentially, is in that very last snippet of conversation between Ellis and Bell when Ellis tells him, what you got ain't nothing new, regarding his mm-hmm. crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. This country's hard on people. You can't stop what's coming. It ain't all waiting on you. That's vanity. Yeah. You could take away the other... 121 minutes of this movie and just have that snippet and in a nutshell that's what this whole thing is about and it's the scene I love the most Mm -hmm. well maybe second most but definitely the scene I identify with the most and the thing that underlines how much of the whole chase and crime element of the picture being just kind of set up if you're an attentive viewer you realize at this point if you're thinking about it yourself you realize that 2 million dollars is inconsequential. Mm -hmm. Have you thought about it in the last 10 minutes? No. For all this dogged pursuit and bloodshed, the story is really about this thing that Ellis just said. Humans and their arrogance and how we mistakenly think we are in control and this whole thing is about us. Now that I think about it, actually, does this film strike you as particularly hyper-masculine? Because obviously all of this action is driven by these three men.
0: Absolutely not.
1: No. What makes no. you say that?
0: Well, maybe because that's number one, that's not in my nature to necessarily right. ascribe that to films. It's not the first thing I think about. It's a human human story, human motivations that you can accept or deny based on each character. And I think it's a, a lot broader than that. Gender
1: has nothing to do with what motivates so. those decisions. No. The reason I ask is because it's we're at the point in the story where Carla Jean has her confrontation with Anton Chigurh and she does not participate in the same way that everyone else does. It seems like, which I think is really interesting, but coincidental that that character is a woman.
0: I don't want to fall into something that becomes reductive for everyone Mm -hmm. that I can easily, I can see any man based on what they've gone through deciding to to make that choice sure or any woman i do not find that her gender plays a part in it
1: it's just individual
0: it's just individual and i think again as to what you just said ellis's words about human arrogance Mm -hmm. and in that moment she also elects to not participate with chigurh's arrogance in terms of his control right and Decision to inflict torture in the way that he does. Uh, We had talked about his motivation is elimination, not pain. Mm -hmm. Though there is an element of torture, not constant sadism. And she elects not to participate in that. She, I think, knows this thing has moved on. And I think again about your question, does her gender play a role in this? And I think back to what I was reading about what she said, why she made this choice. And she thought back to everything that she had lost In this film, she's lost her husband. She's lost her home. She's now lost her mother. Mm -hmm. And so she's got nothing left at that point. So why play this man's game? It's that acceptance, that sense of resignation.
1: Mm -hmm. I like the effect that her choice has on everything that follows. I like the fact that her refusal to participate with him, according to his rules, further illustrates that he is just one more human point on that Mm triangle. he is he is operating at the same level as everyone else he has no advantage no disadvantage because immediately following that as he is leaving the scene of that crime is when he is blindsided by another car even though as the green light that he drove through demonstrates he is working according to what he thinks are the rules Mm -hmm. of that situation her refusal to participate it feels like to me at least symbolically Sets him off on a new tangent that demonstrates that he is not in control either. That he is just as much subject to the whims of random chance as any of the rest of us. Yes.
0: And he gets
1: away.
0: Did you just yes and? I did. Yes and. Because it is an and, not a but. Yes and he gets away.
1: True. Evil is still loose in the world, though it is limping and has a bone sticking out of its arm.
0: It's still got two million dollars. It
1: hasn't been vanquished by any means.
0: It has not. So I think about now we've come to the very, very end. Mm-hmm. And what these additional psychic tolls have taken on Sheriff Bell again. He's already made the decision to resign. He didn't save Carla Jean. No. He hasn't vanquished Sugar.
1: No. And you never will. No. Nope. Those forces will go on. Good and evil alike and everything in between will continue in perpetuity no matter what you do. There's an interesting Tom Waits quote in an interview once. He was talking about how basically this life is a struggle between light and dark. And it seems like most of the time the dark side has one more spear. (laughs) I don't know that that ratio is exactly right, but I always think of it in these cases when it seems like someone has gotten away with this crime despite Mm -hmm. our best efforts. That's kind of the position that Bell is in right now. So he's just hanging up his spear Mm altogether, which gets us to the very end after Bell has retired and he's sitting at the breakfast table with his wife and he begins to tell her about a couple of dreams he had the previous night. This is the scene that both resonates with me the most and also, I think, infuriated the largest section of the movie-going audience that...
0: Who need to have everything wrapped up in a...
1: Right. Toe, <laughs> and have everything I explained guess. to them and have no imagination mm-hmm. whatsoever. Or just couldn't relate for whatever reason, I guess. I... I pity them in that regard, but it means the most to me.
0: Well, he's, he's talking about seeing his father. And akin to our conversation when Ed Tom talks about his father, he realizes his father was long dead at the age that he is now. Mm-hmm. His father never reached mature adulthood, right, or advanced middle age. And How fascinating to see these experiences that he's now lived through, all of these things that he's seen, and that never-ending cycle of good and evil.
1: And this is one of the things that our conversation that spurred this choice for me that we had a couple of weeks ago made me think of about my father, who is alive still, who has seen all of these things and lived through all of these times. My father and I obviously have never seen the extreme circumstances that he and his father went through as law enforcement officers. But there's a lot that he describes in that sequence where he's talking about these dreams that makes me think an awful lot about my dad. He has two dreams. The first one doesn't necessarily apply so much. The one where he's in town and his father gives him some money and he absentmindedly lost it, it seems like. And I think that's just one more instance of him feeling like he comes up short. When he measures himself against his mm-hmm. forebears mm-hmm. But the second one resonates with me more than Maybe any scene I've heard In which someone discusses their father in cinema Where he talks about They're riding together in the evening On horseback out in the mountains And his father is carrying fire and a horn The way they used to in the old times And his father rides out ahead of him To make a fire out there somewhere in all that dark and all that cold that's the much more important dream of those two to me. The notion of his father forging a path, not necessarily for him to follow exactly, but going out there and making a place where, when all is said and done, they can sit down and lay down their burdens together and it's safe. And he is, his father has done all this toil, all this work, in an effort to not only do his best, but to protect his son, and do his best for his son. And I feel so much like that's what my dad has done for me, even though we don't have to talk about it a lot. And we don't, necessarily. But innately, I feel very specifically like that. My whole life, and his whole life up to now, in some way or another, just by his quiet demonstration of any number of things. Just examples of his that I still think about and follow Even something as simple and small as listen first, talk second, which is very much how these men live their lives. I relate wholeheartedly to what he is describing in this dream. I know for some people they interpret that fire as enlightenment or knowledge or what do you, what does that fire symbolize to you when you watch it? Well,
0: I actually want to talk about the first dream. Okay. A little bit. Okay. Let's back up. So. I'm going to say again, I have not read the book, Mm -hmm. nor have I read in its entirety the poem that the title of the book is taken from. But I've read a few things, and I've just sort of been thinking about it a lot since I saw the film. Now, when I first saw the movie, I didn't know any of this other backstory. I simply took the title as this country is people dying young through these terrible, terrible choices. Okay. Before their time. So this is not a place where you're going to get old. Gotcha. Okay. That's how I first took it. Now, in reading through the poem and reading through some other materials, the poem really suggests this is no country for old men because the wisdom is not kept in the younger generation. The younger generation is there for frivolity and fun, and they lose the wisdom of the ages. And so I think again about that first dream and losing the money i think that it's sort of suggesting to me what the poem is saying that the young forget the lessons of the old but he then is and it's told in a regretful tone and then he comes back to the second dream where he's very much trying to absorb everything that his father has taught him or implied or tried to live
1: right do you know how much i like it that I can talk about these things with you and you make me think of something that didn't occur to me <laughs> yeah, before. Right back at you. So was a really interesting idea. I, that never occurred to me.
0: It, it didn't occur to me. You know what? And I want to say something that this is why I enjoy reading about film and talking about film because you can find these other perspectives. Mm-hmm. So I, I had, I had one reading of the title and this has made me think about so many more things and maybe want to follow those rabbit trails of, well, what does the poem say? And what does somebody else think about this? and, why would there be backlash and, and so on and so forth. So explore, read and explore.
1: I wholeheartedly agree.
0: So I didn't answer your question. What do I think the fire in the horn is? So right. I, I guess I come back to, it's that thing from the past that is valuable to hold on to. And if nothing else, it's warmth and survival.
1: Yeah, it's completely different for me because I cannot, my, my dad and this sequence are inextricably linked.
0: Let me also say, and in, in you know me, I tend to be quite literal mm-hmm. as well. And so I take it at face value of this thing that worked in the past. Why would you need to do it differently now, necessarily? So that's that's the first thing that comes to mind.
1: You need to do it differently now, I guess, because everyone else is not moving at that speed.
0: The man out of time, like we were talking which about is before. Yeah,
1: which is exactly where I was going to go. I think... My father and I both feel like we don't necessarily belong in the time we were born in. Not in some sort of stodgy, Luddite way. I mean, we obviously embrace the technical advances. And I love the things that are available to me now for living here. But I mean that more like we're just sort of cut loose from anything that ties us to one era or another. We're sort of in between. He grew up in southwest oklahoma in country very similar to this in a big family and i think that he was the odd one out in his family as well in that i think he was smarter than all the rest of them he was different from his brothers and sisters and from the friends he grew up with he was the one that was thinking about ideas that the rest of them weren't necessarily ready to think about or would have been interested in and so he kept a lot of that to himself i'm pretty sure and just dealt with it in his own head that sort of thing is i guess is what i mean by being not necessarily of your time and place mm-hmm. i think that's a lot of what tommy lee jones's character is dealing with as well when he talks about being overmatched and not necessarily feeling like he can keep up or he belongs in that position anymore as a law enforcer, when he really, truly recognizes there's no law. He is tilting at windmills, practically, at that point. Yeah. When that rising tide of criminal behavior is overwhelming.
0: Or if he had stayed on, it would it would be no more than that. He would be tilting at windmills for the rest of his life. Right. He would never get any farther.
1: So because of all that, I don't see that fire as symbolizing any sort of ancient wisdom, any sort of... Okay. Necessarily any sort of thing that is to be passed from one generation to the next. I see that much more as the tool that's going to make the place for us to sit and be quiet, secure in the knowledge that we have done our best. It's the end of the line,
0: essentially. Yes, yeah.
1: Speaking of the title and the end of the line, (laughs) one of the things that I thought about the title was that it was a little bit ironic as applied to the film because the film is not a film for young men it doesn't feel like unless you've lived a certain amount of time you're just not going to understand everything that is going on with these characters you won't fully appreciate it I would have likely bristled at that idea 20 years ago if you tried to tell me that I'm not going to catch it I'm not equipped I would have insisted probably that I was in some way or another, which would have been further evidence that I was not ready because I would have pushed back against that idea so hard. It would have just been further evidence of that relative immaturity.
0: Well, there's, again, going back to the deputy, the very first of the film, young man who was killed immediately. And the young man whom he works with, Garrett Dillahunt, who embodies that sense of immaturity. Even though, if you look at it, you would think the times are changing so rapidly at this point. You didn't see drug killings on this scale before that, that you start to see happening in the 80s and beyond. So, you would think no one would be equipped to be able to, to deal with it. They hadn't seen anything like it before. It's just such a change, such a sea change happening.
1: So, good will always be two steps behind mm. evil. Because evil is more enterprising. Evil is action it's always gonna and find good is reaction. Tool. Well, that's a jolly note to end on.
0: <laughs> Have I painted us in a corner of that?
1: <laughs> on that note, what movie recommendation <laughs> do you make that we can just sit in a dark room and watch and shelter ourselves from the outside world with?
0: My recommendation is not going to do that. It's going to uh, make you realize the reinforcement of these ideas, which is uh, grim reality. And that is... 19- wait, wait, wait,
1: wait. How does that not do what I just said?
0: Well, sh- we're not... No one sheltered Oh, in this okay. film that I'm going to get to, which is 1967's Point Blank Ooh. by John Borman.
1: That is good.
0: I I guess I have to go back to my literal nature. The first thing I thought of was another hitman and another relentless pursuit Mm. of retribution in this case. And and starring Lee Marvin and Angie Dickinson.
1: That's a great choice. Thank you. I would not have thought of that.
0: You're welcome, world.
1: I also went literal, I guess. For my choice, my recommendation is... Lone Star, John oh, Sayles' fantastic. film from nineteen ninety six. Love it. It's another story of a sheriff in a Texas border town dealing with issues of homicide and legacy. Chris Cooper's in it. Chris Christopherson is in it. Matthew McConaughey's in it.
0: Elizabeth Pena.
1: It even has a Cohen connection because Francis McDormand is in it.
0: Mm-hmm. The co- the connection for me to this, besides the fact that I love it, is that it was spoiled for me before I saw it.
1: <laughs> That's what you get. For reading?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. For reading anything in advance, I guess.
1: I went to see this in the Paramount Theater a couple of summers ago. Maybe five summers ago now, I guess. It's been a while. The Paramount Theater... Here in in
0: Austin, Texas. In
1: downtown Austin is a beautiful Depression-era, true movie palace. And they do a summer film series every year. And one year they screened this. And they have these delightful elderly ushers... (laughs)
0: Who come back every year. They've been doing it forever.
1: Who sat directly behind me. And fortunately, I'd seen the movie already. But for everyone else in the theater that hadn't, at one point, one of these gentlemen, who probably couldn't hear very well based upon the volume he said this, pointed out the secret, the twist, the pivotal relationship between two of the characters As loud as he could, about 30 minutes before it was (laughs) revealed on screen.
0: Oh, jeez.
1: So, spoilers are everywhere. And in keeping with the theme of this film, there's nothing you can do to protect yourself. You Um, just do your best.
0: Walk around with earmuffs on all the time. (laughs) Go to see things five minutes before they're released to the public. So get a, I don't know, a press card. Does that still exist? And uh, Tuck it
1: in your fedora. uh, Yep,
0: yep. And push past everybody, throw your elbows back, or become a mogul so you can screen all of this stuff yourself before all the rest of us plebs get to see it. How about that?
1: Which brings us to the end of another episode. So if you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail. We're on Facebook. If you just search Magic Lantern Podcast, we're easy to find. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. Our show is available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. If you have time and you listen on those platforms, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a rating or review. We got a couple of really thoughtful reviews this week, and we certainly appreciate everyone who took the time to do that. And if you would like to check out supplemental material to the show show notes links the other things that we post in addition to just the audio of the show you can go to magiclanternpodcast.com and
0: thank you for listening to the magic lantern podcast